Would you all stand please for the reading of the Holy Scriptures? I'm going to be reading from Mark 14, 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My, see, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. It's great to be with you all. My name's Cameron. I'm one of the elders here. And thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Anecdotally, I know a lot of people are sick. We had like three more people that were supposed to be in the band this morning. Uh, and that's not good. So prayers, prayers for everybody that's sick. Um, yeah. Um, we'll just jump right in. Uh, you know, Religious martyrdom, sorry, these are heavy subjects that we're just going to be in basically perpetually from now until I just started that. Religious martyrdom, okay. That's, that's, the, that's about the tone of probably the next two months of, of sermons, uh, how, they're all, how they're all begin. Uh, but religious martyrdom is something, you know, that's not unique to any one particular re- religion. And there are countless stories, uh, certainly from Christianity, of sort of brave heroes of the faith, brave martyrs who've experienced incredible suffering and have kind of marched to their deaths with kind of a quiet, peaceful confidence. Um, You've probably heard some of those stories. You've probably seen some of those things depicted in films. And it's not just, you know, in religious circumstances. There's, uh, I feel like in all kinds of movies I can think of, the idea of the sort of stoic, uh, long-suffering action hero who kind of just like, you know, marches, muscly marches into gunfire or something and dies is, it's kind of a trope and it's kind of something that we, at least some aspects of our culture celebrate. Uh, I think the, the example I, that just popped into my head is uh, Terminator 2. Uh, the final, sorry if you haven't seen Terminator 2 and I'm about to spoil the ending of the movie for you. It's the best, it's certainly the best one. Thank you for saying that. Uh, there were really, there was really no need for more after that. There was no need. They, they said what they, they said all they could say with the Terminator franchise, I believe, at that one. But at the end of the movie, if you don't remember, Arnold Schwarzenegger plays the Terminator. He plays an assassination robot, uh, also very muscly. Uh, and he has forged, he's, be, he's good, he's a good guy in the second one. That's the big twist that you discover uh, about a third into the movie. And he's protecting this boy and they form this relationship and it's about like this boy kind of viewing him as the surrogate father figure and then Arnold of course he's playing a robot but he slowly starts to show almost human-esque 
kind of like emotional responses to this kid, at the end of the movie, they realize if they're going to prevent the technological apocalypse that's coming, um, Arnold's Terminator has to be destroyed as well. If any of this technology remains, like Judgment Day, as they call it, will, will still come. So at the end of the movie, uh, John Connor is lowering Arnold's Terminator down into like a vat of magma or something. I don't remember the specifics. It's been a minute since I've seen the film. And he just stoically like lowers down into the, <laughs> into the lava to be destroyed. But you know what he does. Thumbs up. He gives the thumbs up that John taught him. And you're like, we are weeping. It's beautiful. It's, it's this beautiful, touching moment. The robot, he remembers the thumbs up. And then he's gone. Here's my point. The stoic... <laughs> what is my point? The stoic martyr is a trope. And there's something powerful about that, the, you know, the, the confidence and the bravery involved in sort of owning up to the situation, just going for it, receiving your fate, doing it. Um, it's not so with Jesus. In some ways. In some ways. The story that Katie just read for us is a story of Jesus crying out in agony on the cusp of what he's about to do as he enters into kind of the formal stage of his passion, his suffering on behalf of humanity. He does not, in this moment at least, maybe there are others where you could describe it that way, but in this moment, he does not calmly, confidently, muscly, <laughs> like walk into his fate without expressing deep, deep anguish and grief and suffering. And it's very dark and it's also very relatable and I hope by the end of this you'll see it's very, very inspiring and it's very, very uh, essential to understanding what he came to do on our behalf. So uh, let's pray and then let's, let's jump into this admittedly very, very, very heavy story that we have before us. Lord, we just ask again for your spirit to guide this time. Um, we know there are, there are ways this morning could go for each of us individually where... where we came, we listened to a guy yammer on, uh, we, we maybe half-heartedly sang some songs, and we went home and uh, watched football or whatever. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but Lord, what we want to do is to encounter you. We're, we're not here to play act, Lord. We're not here to just go through a rote routine, Lord. We are here to meet with you, the living God. We're here as we open your word, not to just read an ancient text, though it is that, but to hear your voice. So God, speak to us through your scriptures. Help us to see Jesus more clearly today. Help us to meet with Jesus more clearly today. May we walk out of here having encountered you, and in that encounter having worshipped you, and in that worship loving you a little bit more than we did when we came in. We need you for that. Help us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you can put the scripture up there. Ten verses. And you've, this is one of the most well-known and familiar stories, probably, uh, in, in, in the Gospels. That's the story of the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, you've probably seen this in films. You've probably read this numerous times if you've been a Christian for any amount of time. Uh, I assume this is a story that has a lot of resonance for most of us. But with all of these stories that are hyper-familiar, there's, there's a threat that they could, we, we become anesthetized to them or inoculated against them. They, they, they lose their ability or they can lose their ability to really pull on us the way that they're meant to, the way the first readers would have experienced them or the way maybe you first encountered these stories. 
So we'll just, we'll just refresh you here. What we see here in this text is uh, Jesus. We, we mentioned last week that Jesus had just finished up sort of the Last Supper meal, and then as they're walking towards the Mount of Olives, they leave the city of Jerusalem, going down into the Kidron Valley, and on their way towards the foot of the Mount of Olives, Jesus was having this conversation. Last week, it was the conversation about him basically announcing, hey, you're all going to betray me. Surprise! <laughs> you're all going to betray me. You think you're going to be faithful. Peter even rejects Jesus. As, he corrects Jesus. No, 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 Jesus. They might all reject you. I will not. I will be faithful to the end. And Jesus, of course, tells him, no, actually, before even dawn comes this very night, you're going to deny me three times. Um, but it's okay. The subtext of that whole story is, but I'm still going to meet with you after I raise from the dead. You're all going to abandon me in my hour of deepest need. Take heart. I will see you again. And there is grace there for you nonetheless. So now we see that they get to the Mount of Olives. This is the next story here. They get to this place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane uh, literally could just be translated oil press. And it's, it's an olive garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And I actually have a picture uh, from uh, Suzanne and I got to go to Israel. Um, this was in 2016, I believe. And, uh, you know, this is, this is probably not the exact place where Jesus' garden was, but this is a place at the foot of the Mount of Olives where they have an olive uh, garden that, you know, have some of these trees, I think they told me, are like a thousand years old. And they're, of course, the descendants of the trees. that were, So possibly looked very similar to this, possibly a few meters away from, from where we saw this. Um, but that's, that's the sense of these old olive trees you can see that are just beautiful and it's very serene, it's very peaceful. Uh, and this is where Jesus chose to go have this kind of one final moment of prayer with his father before he's arrested. And I have to confess to you, it took everything in me not to make a joke out of this picture. And I'll, because it didn't seem right to, to, to the moment of the sermon, but I suppose I'm going there anyway because I'm telling it to you. Uh, every time I wrote in my notes that it's an olive garden, I just wanted to put a picture of an olive garden restaurant right there. <laughs> and get a, get, a, get a laugh out of it, and then show this picture. I didn't do that, but I've told the joke regardless. Um, so, I think there's an Olive Garden, like, Mall 205. If you want to do some biblical research, go there after church. Uh, anyway, this is very dumb. Um, it's a garden, olive trees. It's called oil press. That's what Gethsemane means. And Jesus, we can go back to the scripture, Jesus, he takes all the disciples with him, all the, the 11 now, because Judas has already gone to do his thing. Jesus and the 11, they, they walk to the foot of the Mount of Olives, and they're all together, but then Jesus takes with him his inner circle, this inner circle that he's taken with him now in the Gospels, a few times for kind of these key events. Most notably, Peter, James, and John are the same three disciples that Jesus took with him up to the Mount of Transfiguration. These are the three that he let them see him in his divine glory as he was shining forth. Like, like the, it's like the, the veil between heaven and earth was ripped apart and they could just see Jesus, the eternal son of God, radiating out with Moses and Elijah appearing and them like deferring to Jesus. And, you know, it's this amazing scene. Peter, James, and John were privy to these very, very, very special moments. They saw Jesus at his absolute highest on that moment. Now, they also get to see Jesus at his absolute lowest. As he says, you three, come with me a little bit further into this garden. I want, I want you to be close to me. I want you to be near to me. So what we see 
What we see next is that we have a Jesus who suffers. And I, we talk about that all the time. Maybe that's not a super profound thing to say, but I just want to want to note that the, the magnitude and the angles of suffering that Jesus is experiencing in this moment. We see, first of all, a relational suffering. And what we see here in, in this little story of Jesus bringing these three with him, and he's like, look, look, keep watch with me, stay up with me. What, what we probably have is Jesus just wanting his closest friends. This is very, very human and good. He wants his closest friends to come with him. He wants them to remain physically close to him for reasons any of us want to have people close to us under healthy, normal circumstances. There is something diffusing about burdens and pain and agony about having people sh next to you, like shouldering your stresses with you. That's what Jesus wanted. As come with me. Come with me into this place. Keep watch. Pray. Be in this with me. And in this moment of anguish, and we're, we'll talk about it more specifically in a second, Jesus is falling to the ground and it's describing it in these very, very grim terms. Um, he was abandoned by them. Not, not dramatically, not in the sense of they like started throwing rocks at him or something, but, but they fell asleep. Jesus just said, could, could you just keep watch with me for just a little bit? Like this is, this is, the mo this is my last moment of freedom. Before, until the resurrection, of course. My last moment of freedom, will you just come with me? And they start falling asleep. And it, three times we see he goes back to them and they're asleep. They just, they can't even, like, they're so disengaged from this moment. I'm sure they're physically tired, fair enough. But like in this moment, they just totally drop Jesus. Totally drop him. They cannot keep watch with them. They can't empathize with him in this moment. They can't provide any comfort. They don't provide any camaraderie. Uh, they don't bear this burden with him. Relationally, in terms of his human relationships here, though he's trying not to be, Jesus is alone. Jesus is alone. So there's relational suffering, and maybe Jesus is even thinking forward to the more dramatic rejection he's going to receive from all of the disciples once he's arrested when they all just, they just abandon ship and leave him to be you know, a political victim of the Roman Empire. So there's relational suffering. There's also physical suffering. Now Jesus in his prayer, in his prayer, look what he says. He says, Abba, Father, we're going to look at this in more detail in a second, but Abba, Father, all things are possible for, me, for you. Remove this cup from me. And that phrase, this cup, is very, very important to understanding what's happening here and actually what's going to happen to Jesus through the rest of the gospel. The cup the cup refers to a couple things. First, he's just, it's obviously, it's a way of talking about his present circumstances. Remove this circumstance from me. You know, Jesus had been predicting his death throughout this whole gospel. We've, we've, I don't know how many, I didn't count them back up, but there's probably been five, six, seven instances where Jesus has either directly referenced or alluded to his death. He was not suddenly surprised in this garden that he was going to die. But, nonetheless, this is a moment where he's hours away from actually experiencing his arrest, his beating, his torturous death. And I think what we can assume here is that everything in Jesus' very real, actually human body, what the scriptures declare, probably had its fight-or-flight impulses triggered. High doses of adrenaline flooding his body, gearing him up to run away from this thing that he knows is happening. 
You know, a year ahead of the crucifixion, it'd be one thing, even for the omniscient Son of God to say, yes, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. But even for him, moments before this thing gets triggered, you can imagine the tensity, the, the pain, the fear, the, yes, the adrenaline. I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. He knows what's coming. Abstract knowledge of something is very, very different from experiential knowledge, being so close to the event happening. Jesus was inching closer to the physical agony of the, of the cross and everything related to it. So fresh on his mind is probably the physical pain that he's about to endure. More than that, more than that, there's theological suffering here. So the cup, again, is very important. But it doesn't just refer, it's not just a metaphor to say, hey, the, the, this is a way of talking about this thing that I'm about to go through. The cup is theological language. The cup is a common image throughout the Old and New Testament of the just wrath of God on human evil. And I know that, that for, that's one of the most like metal phrases you can say in Christian theology, the wrath of God. But I use it, on, I use it because I, I think it's right. It's the idea that God, his anger, his wrath, being the flip side of his love, is justice expressed. He's not a God who looks, let's just take an easy and like obviously horrific example. He's not a God who looks at the Holocaust and says, I'm cool with this. I'm fine with this. I'm indifferent. I'll just give people, you know, I'll just give people a second chance. We'll just, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll let this one slide. He is, he is fundamentally a God who cares about his creation, including you the people that he has created, the people that he loves. And when he sees that love violated, he is angered. And he says, yes, I'm long-suffering, but there comes a point where I say, no more. No more. And he brings justice. And so we, we all, part of us recoils when we talk about the justice of the anger of God. But turn, if you turn that thing just to the other angle, we all have that cry. We've, you've probably been yelling out that cry sometime over the last few years. We need justice in this city, in this world. God says, amen. Amen. And with pure, perfect purity, no compromise, no mixture of evil and, and, and sort of half-truths and, you know, disinformation and uh, bias and uh, fear or cowardice from the moment with, with just purity and goodness. This God wants justice. This God wants justice. And the cup is this image for him delivering that justice. And so when someone is on the receiving end of that, they drink this cup. It's like imagine a big chalice, an ancient chalice, and drinking the wine down and it, it killing someone. I think that's how... That's how Socrates was killed. He had to drink a big chalice of, of poison. That's the image. That's the cup. The cup of God's judgment. Not just judge. Let's, let's use the word justice. That's the heart. I think that translates a little bit better. The cup of God's justice. His anger towards evil. His desire for good to ultimately have its day. So, Jesus talks about the cup. What he's saying is not just I'm about to go experience like something hard. I am about to experience the cup. The cup of the judging justice. 
the anger, yes, even the wrath of God towards human evil for myself. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, was about to experience the weight, the weight of being the bearer of the world's sins, past, present, and future. Jesus was going to be the vehicle through which, like, cosmic justice was going to be done. He was going to take all of sin's guilt and its consequences into, onto himself. And what that also entailed was relational distancing from the Father that sin always entails. So, in receiving the cup, what Jesus is going to be experiencing for the first time ever is is a separation, a lack of intimacy with his loving heavenly Father that's existed before even creation existed. His eternal relationship to his loving Father was going to be met with silence, with distance, with coldness. The great light of the beauty of God, the fountain of every genuinely good thing in this universe, was going to be hidden from him. He was going to taste the very meaning of hell. That's the cup. That's the cup. So Jesus is, you know, some theologians speculate perhaps this was the moment where those things were actually poured on him and he began to feel the separation from God. It's all a bit speculative, maybe, maybe not. We can certainly say those things were were experienced on the cross. But at the very least, he's looking down, clear-eyed, moments away from this process, hours away from this, the full weight of this thing kicking into gear. He's feeling it, friends. He is suffering theologically, theologically with distance from his God. The fourth thing, we would just put it this way, all of these things, relational suffering, physical suffering, the prospect of physical suffering, theological suffering, spiritual suffering, all of this culminated in a fourth, which we might just call emotional suffering. Jesus' body gives out. The language describes him falling to the ground. He falls to the ground. The experience, he experiences what the ESV calls here, great distress and sorrow, which I think could be more accurately, more powerfully, more viscerally translated. He was horror-struck. Horror-struck. It's like this, this fear that just takes your breath away as he's staring down what's before him. And anxiety-ridden. Jesus describes it later that he's sorrowful unto death. It's like he feels as good as dead with the amount of sorrow that's on his back in this moment. You've probably heard this before. The gospel according to Luke, in a parallel account of this story, describes him as having these beads of sweat. You could read it either way. Either they were thick like blood, or they were actually mixed with blood, which is a rare, but red is an actual real phenomenon that can happen to someone blood can come out through your sweat pores perhaps that's what he experienced either way jesus in this moment was living out the words of psalm 55 verses 4 through 5 my heart is in anguish within me the terrors of death have fallen upon me fear and trembling come upon me horror overwhelms me jesus was having a dark night of the soul Jesus 
was suffering an extreme bout of anxiety, depression, fear. I remember in this building when we were going through the gospel according to Mark or Matthew, uh, Tim Mackey describing this, what Jesus is experiencing here as a panic attack. I think that's all accurate. It's exactly what this is. This is a picture of absolute agony and anguish for Jesus. Just to pause there. Make a little application moment. Do you suffer? Do you suffer? Do you have bouts of deep, like, heavy depression? Do you have periods of anxiety? Do you have periods of sleeplessness? Do you have periods of fear, periods of horror? And every time you turn on the news, man, there is some great tragedy to mourn and to wail against. And it's not just the big stuff out there, it's the day-to-day stuff of our individual lives as we're battling addiction and broken relationships and loneliness and loss of jobs, whatever it is, family discord. Like we all suffer. And sometimes that suffering takes forms like this, where you just have to fall to the ground and you don't know if you can get back up. Do you experience those things? I just want you to see that what Christianity, what the scriptures declare is that so does God. In those moments, you don't have a God who sits back distantly and dispassionately saying, huh, I wonder what that's like. I wonder what it's like to suffer in this world, this, this, this earth that I've made, in a human body, to be betrayed by your friends, to feel these deep theological questions where you're like, I don't know if my relationship with God, the God of the universe, if I'm going to be on the right side of this. What this story declares is that our God specifically in the person of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, says, I know what that's like. He is able to empathize and sympathize with us in our weakness. He relates. He knows. He knows. Just leave that there. So Jesus suffers, but he suffers in prayerful submission. His decision to pray with his remaining moments of freedom, it it says a lot about how Jesus views the priority of prayer. It's frankly nothing like how I view the priority of prayer. If I had moments moments of freedom remaining, I'm not sure what I'd be doing. I doubt it would be trying to just get a moment of solitude for prayer to my heavenly father, but that's what Jesus does. It reminds me of Martin Luther's saying, I have so much to do that I shall have to spend the first three hours in prayer. Something beautiful there. So how did Jesus pray? Just very quickly. First, he comes to his father relationally. How he speaks to, he speaks to the God of the universe. He says, Abba, that's trans, trans, uh, transliteration of the Aramaic. It's just this, int- it, it means dad, but it's like this intimate, you know, some have tried to say daddy. I'm not sure if that's quite right. It's, it's, it's this term of endearment. It's not disrespectful, but it's just this intimate, warm, warm term. Maybe dad is the right one. And then in the Greek, pater, for father, it's a, it's a bit more like dignified title, yet I think father is a great translation of that. So dad, father, that's how he relates. 
He comes to his father relationally. And then he acknowledges God's ability. This is almost like a little moment of praise. He says, all things are possible for you. There's nothing impossible for you, God. He's just reaffirming his commitment and the power of his father, God. All things are possible for you. And then he makes his request. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. I just want you to, to hear that because, because what we have here is, again, Jesus has been saying throughout the Gospels with this just steely resolve, like, I'm going to go die. I'm going to go suffer. And I believe I'm accomplishing, like, the most important thing in human history, which is the redemption of mankind. But when this moment comes, his suffering is so great that he cries out in this moment of vulnerability, take it away. I don't want this. Please. Is there any other way we can do this? Is there any way we can do this without me having to drink this cup? He expresses what he wants. And the final phrase. Yet. Not what I want. Not what I will. But what you will. He concludes his prayer prioritizing the will of God. And in that prioritization, he's trusting God. You know, and there is a great theological mystery in the relationship between the will of the Father and the will of God the Father and the will of God the Son. It's like, shouldn't those things be pretty in sync? If we're talking about a triune God, three, per- three persons, one God. Um, yes, it's It's mysterious. And I don't think this is really the place to try to fully untangle that in this moment, though I'm happy to sit down with anybody and wrestle through this over a cup of coffee. That sounds like a dream to me. Let's do it. Um, But surely we can say that God the Son and God the Father were in full agreement within the Godhead about the eternal plan to rescue humanity this way. This was the plan that when in, in God's decision to choose to even create, he knew there would be tragedy involved, that this is what would happen. And for some reason, he counted, counted the cost worthy of this loving relationship that he was going to have with this creation. Even if it meant that God was going to have to die, to die, to, to heal that relationship. Jesus came, in fact, we're told, to do the will of the Father. Jesus declared, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Their wills are united. I think probably most simply what we have happening here is the, is the humanity, the genuine, full humanity that's right next to the genuine, full divinity. That's mysterious too, but we have to hold on to those two ideas. It's the genuine humanity of Jesus expressing this anxiety and this fear, though what we see is he was not. This fear did not shake him to his deepest level. As evidenced by the end of the prayer, he says, finally, look, this is what I'm feeling, but God, I trust you. I trust you. Though this literally sounds like hell. It is hell. That's what's before him. He says, I'll trust you. I will trust you. It's evidenced by the end of this prayer. It's evidenced by his genuine faithfulness to the end, which we are going to be reading about for the next, next several weeks. Jesus submits his immediate desire to avoid this pain and this suffering to his fundamental trust that what God wills is somehow, somehow going to be for his deepest good. 
There's a lesson for us there, friends. We will all, you probably today, whether you recognize it or not, you will have that moment where you have a qu- question of, this sounds impossible, this sounds horrible, this sounds miserable, I can't possibly see why God would ask me to do or to not do this thing. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust. That's what Jesus did. I was listening to a sermon on this passage uh, from Tim Keller, who's one of my, my favorite preachers. And uh, I, I didn't write down the quote, but he, he had this observation I thought was so brilliant. He said, in the, it, part of what makes this prayer so profound and Jesus' suffering so profound is this idea. He says, every other person across the scriptures, across human history, has been told by God, follow me and I will lead you ultimately into union with me into life, into blessing. And I would just nuance that, of course, by saying that doesn't mean there's no short-term suffering. Of course there is. But the fundamental promise is, trust me, and even if you suffer, there will be ultimate glory and goodness and peace and healing on the other side of that suffering. For Jesus alone, uniquely, Jesus was told, follow me with complete and utter perfect faithfulness, which course only he is capable of and I will lead you into separation from me and to death and to the curse of the cross imagine the weight of what Jesus was feeling this is his prayer this is his prayer and in that final statement what we see is Jesus is in this final moment of temptation even he passes the test. And, and I, I would be remiss if we didn't mention the, the parallels of this story to the Garden of Eden, where you've got the first Adam placed in a garden who's, who, who's, who's explained something in reference to a tree. Trust God in relationship to this tree. You can eat of any of these trees, but please just don't eat of this one. And that Adam failed the test miserably as we all know. Now we have a second Adam, to use the language of Paul. Now, again in a garden, now facing a, a challenge related to a tree. Go to that tree and suffer. Go to that tree and suffer. And ultimately good will be done on the other side of that. And this Adam passed the test. So all this begs the question, read this story, like this is miserable, this is a horror show, it's so sad, it's so heavy, especially if you love Jesus, to see, see our king in this vulnerable position, it begs the question, why? The question that Jesus' agony and willful submission to endure what he's about to endure it begs the question, why did Jesus subject himself to this? Is he just a glutton for punishment? Is this just the meaningless outcome of a cruel world? The answer is, of course, of course, the unfathomable, deep, rich, full-hearted, self-giving love that he possesses. The writer of Hebrews 
in chapter 12, verse 2. Probably reflecting back on the events of the, the passion narrative, perhaps this story on his or her mind wrote this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, of course, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews is saying, yes, despising the shame of all of this, in this moment, this Jesus saw joy. There was a joy that propelled in these moments of desperation him to remain faithful. What is that joy? What is that joy? It's you. It's you. Why would he do this? It's because though the suffering is more than any of us can even imagine, the joy that would be accomplished, the joy that would be produced on the other side of this was even greater, perhaps even exponentially greater. The joy of saving a people to himself to be in eternal, close, intimate, perfect, good, joyful relationship with him. He was willing to stare this down because he loved you so much. And you go back to a verse again that it risks losing its power because we're so, you know, it, it's, it's on like weird Christian, like fake Starbucks t-shirts or something. Like, you know, all the like weird stuff like that. Are they still make those or is that a relic of like the 90s? I'm not sure. But like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's nice. I've heard that one before. Everyone knows that verse. No, so, God so, he, this much, he loved the world. He loved you. That he gave his son. And this was no divine cosmic child abuse, as it's sometimes said, a kind of a cruel father God pouring out his wrath on the cool and nice and gentle son of God. Sometimes that's what's depicted. No, what we're, what we're told throughout the scriptures is that this was the eternal plan of God. He, did not, he was not content to be apart from us. So this God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they fully counted the cost of what it would mean for the Father to lose a son. God loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He said, I will give this Son that I love more than anything. If He is a Father... If he is a father, as the scriptures declare, then you can begin to get a hint of what this cost him. Simultaneously, as we've already mentioned, this is the son willing to lose a father, to lose this eternal intimate connection he's had. This is a spirit counting the cost to grieve the fracturing of this fellowship. All three persons of this trinity, this triunity, working together to say, you are worth it. This is worth it. This new community, this new family I'm building is worth that. It's worth it for the Father. It's worth it for the Son. It's worth it for the Spirit. It's worth it for God. The joy of what will be accomplished is worth this. It's worth this suffering. It's worth the suffering of the garden. It's worth the suffering of the cross that we're going to read about. in this passage 
We see the humanity of Jesus. We see the suffering of Jesus. We see the the humble, trusting prayer of Jesus. And we see the love of Jesus. We can't forget any of those friends. It's too beautiful to forget. It's too joyous to forget. It's too mysterious to forget. It's too motivating to forget. It's too dignifying to forget. This is how much He loves you. This is how much He loves me. For the rest of our time, we just want to sit in that love. I want to wager this morning, we don't want to dwell necessarily on the suffering, although that's a useful thing to think about, but it's the love that, that produced that suffering. And as we're, as we're going to sing, uh, we want you to sing with a recognition of this, that it was the joy of His love for you and His relationship with you that produced this. As we take the bread and the cup, take them into ourselves, we celebrate the fact that we get to take this cup and not that cup. Amen? Amen. He took that cup so we can have this one. The cup of His new covenant. His love poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. We do that in celebration, friends. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's for you. I don't have anything else to say. I think we should just praise Jesus. Sound good? (laughs) Let's pray. Pray with me.